Hey, Dovin. Hey, Dovin, Chaim. Listen, before we get started, I wanted to ask you, do you by any chance have a cow and a sheep that's younger than a year old? Um, I wanted to borrow it, or have it, actually, if you can. What? What? What, what do you need animals for? Why would I have ant? What? What do you mean? I, like, I wanted to pray to God for a good podcast episode, and you know that the only way to pray is by setting up an altar and sacrificing animals. No, we, we don't do that. Are you sure you're qualified to be recording an episode on the history of prayer? Well, now that you mention it, probably not, but I'm going to anyway, because I'm David Chaibram Chaib. And I'm David Brown, and this is Genuine Judaism. Okay, so a couple of quick ones before we start. Um, we're going to def- divide the episode of the history of prayer itself into two episodes. The first part will be from pre-revelation from the beginning of time until the establishment of the first monarchy in Israel. And the second episode will be from the establishment of the first monarchy in Israel until the 21st century. And we actually plan to divide the topic itself, the topic of prayer itself, into three or four episodes, including this one. So it'll be two episodes on the history of prayer, uh, another episode on on a discussion me and David are going to have about prayer, um, which we're excited for. The final episode, which we're not sure about whether we will do or not, um, will be about the Jewish prayer book itself. And another uh, quick thing to a quick thing to keep in mind is, for the purposes of this episode, prayer is going to be defined as a dialogue with oneself or a means to deepen one's connection to a god or gods. Um, and since we'll be talking about many cultures in addition to the Jewish one, to the Israelite one, we will use two terms when referencing a higher power. We'll use the term. God, gods or God for a specific deity, a specific God of another culture. And we will use the term Hashem for the Israelite God when speaking about the Israelite God. Um, Just to clarify, the name Hashem is what people would think of if they hear of the Tetragrammaton. Okay, a quick reminder that we divide history into four periods, the pre-Revelation era. Um, the era of revelation until the first monarchy in sovereign Israel, that would be the second era. The third era is the first monarchy in sovereign Israel until the destruction of the second temple. And the fourth era is the second temple's destruction until the 21st century. For each of the eras, we're going to start with talking about prayer in the broader world. And once we discuss the broader world and their reaction to prayer, their interpretation of prayer, we will move on to the Israelite world and how the Jews viewed prayer. And a piece of exciting news is that if you want to be a guest on our podcast, you can do that. You can contact us. Um, delve deeper at genuinejudaism.org is our email. Um, once again, that's delve deeper at genuinejudaism.org. We're still trying to figure out how to add notes to the podcast. So if you want our sources, you can just email us because I'm not quite sh- we're not quite sure how to add them into our actual episode transcript. 
So final thing, I really want to give a huge shout out to a, to a, a self-proclaimed number one fan whose support I really appreciate. Um, his name is Tal Shoshani from Los Angeles. Tal, thank you so much for your support. It means a lot. I appreciate the good wishes you've given us. Thank you so much, Tal. So David, you want to you wanna start us off? Sure. All right. So uh, pre-revelation, right? That's from the beginning of creation up until 1312 BCE, up until Matan um, Torah, the, the giving of the Torah in Harsinai. But uh, the origin of prayer is, is, is really tied to the idea of spirituality. They're really one and the same in almost basically before there was an idea of praying to a higher entity, there had to be established that something exists outside of nature. So it was concluded all things that are all physical things, all mundane, natural things have a, we could call it like a tethering. There's a, a, it's a physical manifestation of a spiritual thing. So this belief system is known as animism. Am I saying that correctly? Yeah, I mean, we're not we're not going to be that that exact on pronunciations here. Right. Way too many things that you guys will understand once we get into it. There's just pronunciations here that we do not we cannot be held accountable for. Yeah. Um, yeah. So animism, like like David said, it so to kind of elaborate more on animism is originally the way that we progressed into a state as human beings with the idea of a spirituality and the idea of something supernatural is originally uh, most likely from hallucinations or dreams of, you know, humans, of species of mammals, whatever it was. We saw in dreams something that wasn't occurring in the natural world. And we concluded back then, back way back when, you know, probably third millennia before common era, fourth millennia, maybe we concluded that, it had to be that there was there it had to be that every physical thing had a spiritual counterpart and the important caveat here is that these things included inanimate objects in addition to animate objects just to recap animism is the origin of all kind of according to most anthropologists that i've seen and i've done not that much extensive research but i'm not an expert please correct me if i'm wrong Animism is the origin of this idea that there are supernatural things. And what happened was animism kind of looked at everything and said, this rock has a spirit, this human has a spirit, this animal has a spirit, and all these spirits are the same level of spirituality, whatever that means. They're not, it's not that we were one spirit, it's that each physical object had a spiritual counterpart, which was without a hierarchy. But then with the progression of time, yeah, sorry, Devin. I realize it's, it's interesting. I'm thinking about it now. What Adam, the first man, what he did in naming all the different parts of creation, that was really what he did was he looked at each thing and was able to understand what the spiritual nature was. And through that, it was given its name. So that that's really I, I don't I think that's as far back as animism could possibly go. If, if this is my hypothesis is correct, which I it's just, I have no clue. Oh, so you're saying it's as though he he separated the hierarchies is what you're is what you're saying. In a way, yeah, he he was able to assign ascribe uh, spiritual uh, quantities to things. That's that's something to consider for sure. Yeah, we'll never know, or will we? 
I expect in the discussion episode, we're going to get a bit fired up because I think yeah. we have differing opinions on this. <laughs> um, but animism progressed into this idea that, you know, I, I, uh, just to give you an example that I think will sum this up quite nicely and quite quickly. I was taking a walk on the seventh day, the Sabbath, the Shabbat. Uh, flashback to our first episode or just flashback to the idea that we all live in every... Okay. Anyways, I was taking a walk on the Sabbath and it was very hot outside. I don't know what tempted me, what compelled me to take a walk that day. I just wanted to and it was a long time till we were going to eat. So I took a long walk, like 30 minutes out of the way. Not smart. I didn't know the area where I was and it was boiling hot and I felt like I was going to faint. And so I started walking back and it was scorching. And I kind of, you know, I kind of just stopped and I said, wow, a breeze would be great right now. And lo and behold, there was no breeze. Um, There was a breeze like, (laughs) there was a breeze like five minutes later, but regardless, I was waiting for it. And when I felt the breeze, to me, it was like, wow, this breeze overpowered for a brief moment, maybe, but it overpowered the intense heat of the sun and kind of helped me, you know, feel normal so perhaps this is a very simplified version of how hierarchies were established because imagine living in the desert back in fourth millennia third millennia before common era and you you're uh, you just praying all day for this breeze that can help you get to some body of water that can help you make those final steps and so you realize hey the sun's trying to kill me And you know what stopped it from killing me? The wind, right? This is a very oversimplified analysis, but that's essentially what it is. Um, That's what happened. So let's let's talk about uh, Egyptian culture for a minute. So apparently this is, we're going from the 28th century BCE up until the 20th century BCE and something in here called the pyramid text. You want to elaborate on that? Yes, so the pyramid texts, the to be to be clear the the egyptian culture itself was rather unchanged until the period of revelation um but the pyramid texts themselves are estimated to be around the 28th to the 20th century before common era so these these pyramid texts are a are sort of the next step one of the next steps that were taken in terms of prayer and understanding spiritual hierarchies and everything so once there was an establishment of this entity has a higher spiritual power than that entity. It became evident that there was a higher spiritual entity than human beings, even though logically speaking, you know, we felt as though we were superior to all animals because of our speech, free will, whatever, you know, I'm not getting into that debate now, but it became clear that because we die, there must be something more powerful than us. So this thing became termed God's. Right, and the Egypt, the Mesopotamians and the Egyptians were kind of the first cultures that we know about to really elaborate on God, gods in a, in like a society, not not man, not God to man. Um, the Egyptian culture started out viewing prayer as a means to get into the next world peacefully, because think about what the Egyptian society did, as far as we know. As far as we know, um, animal sacrifice was a big part of their a uh, big part of their rituals. Their are opinions in Judaism which hold that they viewed some animals as gods. There were sections of people who did that. It's unclear within the Egyptian society what exactly was happening at the time. But 
they started out praying they started out viewing prayer as a means to have a peaceful afterlife because in their view humanity already dominated the physical world and the spiritual counterpart of the physical world so now it just came to getting into the next part of the of the journey let's put it that way but and this is where the prayer kind of evolves in Egyptian culture. Humans had dominance in the physical world and the spiritual counterpart. But what was left was to gain dominance in the next world or, you know, the afterlife. Egyptian culture was very into the afterlife. Well, you better be if you only live like 30 years or however long. <laughs> the, so they basically, they, they, up, they upgraded, they, I don't know, upgraded is the right word. They evolved their prayer, not only to include a, a passage into the next world because what they thought in my opinion what i think they thought was okay listen we probably got enough uh, egyptian kings or paros or paros into the next world that they can kind of provide a safe entry for us now we're going to update our texts and our prayers and our sacrifices in order to give them dominion in the next world so not only would we be dominion would the paro be dominion over this world they would also have dominion over the next world and that's kind of how the Egyptian texts evolved in prayer. The society at the time was geared toward dominion. You know, that was, what's, that was the goal of prayer in the third millennia before Common Era. Okay, so let's move on to the Mesopotamians. Mesopotamian, that's, um, yeah. from, this is from the 23rd century BC, and it's a period that apparently the, the uh, anthropologists have a lot, of, a lot of information about. Want to go on that? So let's talk about the Mesopotamians, like David said. This is interesting. The anthropologists have a the the anthropologists owe their uh, vast knowledge to the writings of. Oh, we're gonna butcher this name. We're gonna butcher it. You want to go first? No, you got it. Okay, Enheduanna. Enheduanna was the high priestess of a Mesopotamia of the Mesopotamian goddess of sex, love, or political power. The name of this goddess was Inanna. And she was also the high priestess of another Mesopotamian god, the god of the moon, known as Nana. Now, if you remember from our previous episode, uh, the moon was an entity to be feared. And um, again, the moon was uh, closely connected to gods for a long time, but especially in this millennia. Um, She reigned in the city of Ur. If that city sounds familiar to you, it's probably because you're thinking of the famous biblical episode of Ur-Kazdim. Uh, the biblical city in which we believe, uh, in which Abraham hailed from, correct? That is correct. So she, this high priestess, is the first known poet with uh, preserved and recorded works. She composed many hymns, and they're very fascinating hymns. Um, I personally looked at the temple hymns that she wrote, which was essentially songs and dedications to these humongous works of architecture that she created for the gods. Um, from what I understand, when, you created the, when they created these humongous works of architecture, it was believed that the spirit of the god rested in there, rested in the respective temple. Um, the temples were a, mean, a, a means of inspiring not only awe, because I think that's, I don't think that's accurate because awe kind of denotes that you can med- be meditative there if you're even if you're an enemy of the society or whatnot. It was meant to inspire fear of the and dread of the people. So there's a, there's a hymn for the temple 
known as the oh man oh another one the Gishbanda Temple of Ningish Zida. I don't even know what I languages is originally in. I, I, this is originally in the Mesopotamian language, which I do not know. Acad- no, are, there not any, Acad- are there any derivatives of it? Listen, I'm not going to speculate. Like, how did they translate these hymns? Well, I'm assuming they... Okay, so this is more of like a dis- discussion between me and you, but I'm guessing that it was probably comparative works of, the, of similar eras and, you know, further authors kind of like taking this original text and translating it into their own language. And then we kind of do a whole domino effect game back. Uh-huh. So the, temp- the Gishbanda temple of Ningizhida, I butchered that, is described as a terrifying and red place whose way is perplexingly hair-raising. It gave people goosebumps when they saw it. That's how she... It should. It it has the vibe that it gives people goosebumps when they see it. Is what this priestess wrote about it. Again, her name is Enheduana. I look her up. It's it's fascinating. Makes me think of those like horror movie violin string noises. That's probably <laughs> what it was. <laughs> Please edit that out. <laughs> okay, sure, no problem, <laughs> no problem. Um, so we see that in the Mesopotamians, if um, when man-made sculptures, originally man-made things to kind of contain the gods, were huge architectural accomplishments. They were huge, like, you know, they were, they were magnificent buildings. Because that's what you, because if you think about it, if you're talking about containing a god, if that's what we speak about, then really the only way to do that is through a huge, amazing building, right? Like in, in the beginning steps in primitive, primitive culture. Let's move on to the astrology. Okay, let's move on to astrology, right? So, um, I mean, astrology isn't actually that big of a player as we think it is. Like, you know, I think when I was growing up, I kept hearing that astrology predicted the down, the downfall of, you know, this and that of the Egyptian empire and all that. And I think it's even in the Torah somewhere that the astrologers, what's translated as the astrologers, um, which, you know, you can debate that translation, but the Egyptian culture probably had astrologers, most likely more than not, they did. Astrology wasn't really something, people didn't really pray to the stars. You know, they didn't, they might've prayed to a God of theirs for a good alignment of the stars. Um, from what I've seen, there's really hardly any evidence to suggest that they believed very strongly in astrology as a God. Uh, but astrology was very useful. It predicted seasons and all that. And then, it kind of became a source of predicting people's fate. It wasn't really a god. Uh, Rambam does talk about a period where there was uh, worship of the luminaries, that you would call them, where that people originally saw them as servants of God that were worthy of respect, and over a long period of time, it developed into, oh, these things are deities of their own. Yeah, so it could be that I'm, that I'm having trouble. Uh, maybe it's a good idea to disconnect the idea of astrology from the idea of the stars and the moon, even though they're, they're Definitely. literally connected. But the stars and the moons being deities is not the same thing as astrology being correct. Deities. That's so correct. Like, astrology doesn't view, isn't an ideology that views the stars and the moons as deities. Right. right. Okay, enough. so that's, that's, a good, that's a good point. Thank you. Okay. So now that we've uh, talked from the, um, what was the word? Anthropomologist. The, the anthropological broader the anthropological world. point of view. We're now gonna we're gonna bring in the um, the view from the Jewish world, the Israelite world, from the, the beginning of creation, from Adam to his children Cain and Hevel, up until uh, Noah. 
right. Noah, some might call him. <laughs> uh, according to the Jewish tradition, they were Cain and Hevel, the children of Adam, were alive in the 28th century BCE, and Noah was alive in about 19th century BCE. Cain uh, and Hevel were the first to offer sacrifices. Uh, they weren't animal sacrifices. They were sacrifices of their crops. It was wheat and flax and, and whatnot. Um, and this is also incidentally led to a bit of violence. The first act of, of uh, capital crimes of the capital crime, but. Um, okay. But let's talk about Cain and Abel, you know, uh, uh, Adam is Adam isn't really a fixture for prayer because, um, as I, I like um, I like what how I heard it once. I'm not going to say the name because I'm afraid it's going to be like a copyright thing. But I heard once that Cain and Abel. Um, I'm, it's a popular view. Cain and Abel were really the first humans, because Adam was the first man. But also, like you know, in the Jewish tradition, he was in a, the Garden of Eden, whatever that means. And yeah, all they were the first to be born. Yes, they were the first to be born in this putrid physically although according to the tradition they were born uh, fully developed adults you know like <laughs> let's save this for the discussion <laughs> yeah all right oh you mean adam and you mean adam and eve no what yeah i'm done with this man and the pregnancy was about an hour oh come. okay you know fine i'm not i'm not getting into this well that's actually not like that oh you mean like instead of nine months yeah Yo, what is? Wow, is, we have differing opinions on things. This is pre. This is pre the the sin of Adam. So before that pregnancy, there was the curse was specific. The pregnancy would be long and difficult. This is before that. So obviously it was different. How exactly? I don't know, but it certainly was. I get that. Okay, fine. So let's talk about Cain and Abel until Noah, because Adam, I don't think, is really a prayer. Um. So uh, an interesting note about Cain and Abel, I guess, is that. Cain and Abel would bring offering or the first people to bring offerings to um, Hashem, you know, to the Israelite God. Um, actually, is that true? Did Adam bring an offering before? Not, uh, nothing in scripture. Okay, fine. Great. So Cain and Abel brought offerings to Hashem. So interestingly enough, pr you know, prayer here, you know, uh, Cain and Abel's sacrifices, their prayers, whatever it was, it was viewed as an accepting, not accepting relationship. You know, we know that Abel's, uh, Abel's uh, so, uh, offerings were accepted and the Cain's weren't, what, whatever that means. But exactly what they were trying to garner, it's not clear, but it's pr possible that it was just a, uh, a sort of uh, perhaps um, not really societal, like a familial trait that they did, you know, like kind of like we pray each day, three times a day. They saw the acceptance of their prayers. We don't, you know, we, I mean, we might in, in little uh, tidbits of future events, but not really at the moment like they would. And so. I uh, just thinking about something I heard that, that there's a medrash that, that says that after Kain's uh, offering was not accepted, he basically denounced the idea of, 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 of he said, that there's no judge, there's no judge and there's no judgment. There's no says, if there was a true judgment in this world, then my offering would have been accepted. All my calculations that I made, they had to have been correct. So he basically be, was a heretic for a few minutes. Didn't last very long. Well, God spoke to him. So. Uh, Madras, for those who don't know, is a, uh, a collection of Jewish 
morally imbued behind-the-scenes stories from the uh, scripture. So um, that's pretty interesting. I did not know that. Uh, but okay, I mean, Cain being uh, like a heretic, I guess never really crossed my mind, but I, I could see that, you know. It was just for a minute. He, 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 it was just, he was, the truth is he was depressed after his, right? He said, his, it, typically people translate it as he became annoyed or, or like distressed, but it really means like, like to, to, like your face falls. You're, you're just, right. you lose, it's just a lack of like hope. Your, your countenance drops. Exactly. Where you just, so he was, he was, you know, everybody, I'm sure anybody can attest that when you're feeling down, you think and say things that you don't normally. Exactly. Do. So let's move on to Noah and we're going to move on to Noah and we're going to point out differences between him and the patriarchs and why some might say he wasn't qualified to be one. Da, da, da. Okay. Anyways. Um, Noah, you see, it's written very peculiarly in the, in the scripture. It says, Noah was a, per, a man unblemished in his generation. And there's very interesting commentary on that. The sages virtually, um, they, they disagree. Some sages say that he was perfect. He was a unblemished man in his generation, a generation of wicked people. How much more so would he have been unblemished in a generation of righteous people the other side of the sages get interesting they say he was unblemished in his generation had he been alive in any other generation he would not have been considered unblemished a vastly radical idea proposed by the zohar i'm whose identity i'm not going to get into but the zohar says that um that noah was actually oh actually this might be rashi correct me if i'm wrong another jewish sage uh, he says that Noah was chastised for not talking to God and telling him. Yeah, that's Rashi. Okay, so it's, it's actually an 11th century French scholar, um, Jewish French scholar. He says that Noah was given a task to, no, he was given a task to build the ark because God is going to destroy the world. That's why the building had to take so long so that people would have time to repent. Exactly. But what was Noah's mistake? That he didn't, first of all, he didn't plead to God on, the, on behalf of the world. And the second of all, that he didn't actually do much in terms of preaching and helping his society out, which was considered a major fault in him. Now, prayer here is, you can get a view from the sages that prayer here is meant to be, if God approaches you, let's say, we don't, we don't really have this now, but back, in, back then, if God approached you with something that he planned to do, if he approached you with it, and it seemed morally incorrect in your eyes, you would talk to God about it. We know, we know Abraham's famous line of should the, uh, should the ultimate uh, arbiter of justice not act justly? Something like that, right? Mm -hmm. And so Noah was actually considered to be um, inadequate in this, in this uh, type of prayer. Go on, Devin. This is very interesting. I was thinking about this yesterday. If you go through the 25, 24 books of Scripture, the, the amount of, I don't want to say rebuttal, but maybe follow-up questions that prophets would give kind of increased over like when you go from at least compared to Moshe where Moshe didn't ask any questions. Moshe just, Moshe just did because I mean, you know that Moshe was, I mean, this is a whole nother discussion, but Moshe, Moshe had a very different level of prophecy. So for him, it wasn't difficult to get, to get on uh, what you call God's uh, page, get on the same page. 
I was I was looking in in That's interesting actually. That explains a lot of things. Yeah, that when someone cuz the truth is we saw by who was this? Was it Yiftach? Not sure. The one yeah. of them wasn't wasn't yeah. sure. They did a couple tests to make sure is this really God speaking to me? The what test with the with the with the wool. Oh, um was it Jephtha? It could be. I, I, for some reason, think it was Gidon. I don't know. That, no, you're right. It was Gidon. Okay, fine. So, meaning that you don't necessarily know right off the bat, like, oh, this voice speaking to me is God. Maybe I just became schizophrenic. Right. Yeah, no, it's, it's real because that's, that's actually something we see with Ezekiel, right? Like, you, you, God says, basically, you're going to look schizophrenic and like a crazy person, but it's me talking to you, right? Mm-hmm. So, self-fulfilling prophecy, perhaps? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Um, but regardless, uh, l- let's move on. Noah is seen with the task of really, he was supposed to save his generation and instead everybody died. That's the view. Of, that's one of the view of the sages, which is, it's a rough view. Okay. So let's talk about the patriarchs, right? We have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm not going to say a lot about them except for that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob from what the sages virtually all agree on. And from what we see, they set up altars everywhere proclaiming the glory of, you know, Hashem, of the Israelite God. And kind of, they had very, very complicated philosophies. And you could see this because Abraham, as we know, was always taught never uh, that child sacrifice is an abomination. And yet kind of unquestioningly commits child, well, is ready to commit child sacrifice, however you want to view that story. They had complicated philosophies. It wasn't, they were not blind followers by any means because then, the entire situation with Abraham and Sodom and Gomorrah doesn't make sense. Many things doesn't, don't make sense if you want to go by that. Um, but Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob virtually all had the same idea of uh, kind of if God came to them with something they viewed as immoral, they would speak back towards God and say, no, this is not right, you know, in a much more respectful way. And use human intellect to guide the to guide the next discussion. Outside of of Sodom and Gomorrah, what where where other instances do we have of that? I'm just curious. I don't remember off the top of my head. Okay, so now let's talk about Isaac. One very um, Isaac does portray a a more familiar mode of prayer that we're used to, in which he prays to God for for his wife to become pregnant and so does abraham by the way the the, the matriarchs were all barren for some for some uh, much debated reason in the in the in at the commentators so they would pray yeah could be could be god adores prayers that much okay so now we're going to talk about one thing with jacob and then we're going to move on to the israelite world and going to move on to the next era so with Jacob, there's an interesting prayer that happens. Not really a prayer, but he has this famous dream, the dream of Jacob's ladder. And after the dream, he makes a deal with God, sort of. He sets up an altar there, and he says, if I am protected from all my enemies on this journey that I am taking, when I leave my father's house, you know, to kind of avoid my brother from killing me and everything, if, if I'm protected, if I have water, bread, and, you know, food for myself, and I come back here safely, then Hashem will be my God. Then, then I will claim the Israelite God as, the, as my God. Now, it's noteworthy to mention that all the commentators say this cannot be taken at the surface level because there is no way prayer at any point in terms of prayer between a person and God 
is making a condition. Now note that they're not saying the problem with the condition was that Hashem was going to be his God only after the fact. The problem was that he was making a condition. We don't believe in prayers with conditions. You know, this in, in the general sense that we think about it. You know, God, if you give me a good grade on my test, I promise I, I'll give charity this time when I get my paycheck. Like, well, that doesn't make sense because you wouldn't be working. Bad analogy, my bad. But you, you understand what I'm saying. And I also find it difficult to, to even take the idea that up until that point, what Jacob did not consider um, to Hashem to be his God. Because the, the uniqueness of the patriarchs was said about, about Abraham, that Laman Yitzab as bon of Agarov, that, that he would, that his children, he would make sure that his children would follow in his path. That was the uniqueness of, of Abraham versus other saintly people in his generation. Yeah. It's, it's on, it's not possible to take it face level. Um, so what did that prayer mean? If you want to go into it, uh, Nachmanides, a 14th or 13th century Spanish scholar, I believe, maybe French, I, f- I forget. But he essentially says that this condition wasn't this prayer that we see at surface level. It was a psychological hold on Jacob to ma- for his own self to, oh, to make it back safely to this location after he fulfilled his self-proclaimed mission of kind of spreading God and, you know, making his own kind of family and starting everything and going with the values his parents taught him. It was his own condition because if you hold God to be of the utmost value, let's say, yeah, um, then if you create a condition with your utmost value, saying that if I don't do this, my utmost value is not, it's not, it can't be, that's not my utmost value. You've placed a psychological hold on yourself that forces you to go down that path and forces you to constantly want to make it out of the situation and gave him the drive essentially to make it back home. And so now, now the Israelites kind of after Jacob, the Israelites, well, with Jacob's still alive, there's the whole story of Joseph and his brothers. I'm not going to get into it, but essentially the Jews end up in Egypt. The Israelites end up in Egypt. Um, uh, so in Egypt, the only form of prayer we see really from the Jewish side is that God Hashem has heard their tears, has heard their cries, and has felt their suffering, which implies that they only really, the only prayer of theirs that was noteworthy in scripture was their prayer of complete despair and reliance on God to take them out of the pit that they were suffering in. Um, So that's important because this is a very important psychological state of the Jewish people at the time of their exodus in Egypt. Uh, not no, not exit. Slavery in Egypt. Um, they're they only view God as this beacon of hope, and that's important. This this person, this thing, this entity to come to with your when there's nothing nothing else to help you. Okay, so now let's just talk about. Okay, so let's just finish this up with the revelation until before revelation. So what you see, and you see the psychological state of the Jewish people kind of in play when they exit Egypt because what happens is they come to the they come to the the Sea of Reeds what is it or the Red Sea which one of those it's actually somewhat debated but I can't remember there is a correct answer I don't remember which in in the scripture it's known as the uh, it's oh the Nile what am I saying it's the Nile I'm so sorry what's the Nile where the Kriyas Yamsev happened where the no. it's not the Nile Mm-mm. Wow, I should not be recording a half. The Nile's a river. Oh, you're right. My bad, my bad. Okay, got confused. 
You definitely cut that one out. <laughs> I'm going to keep it in so people see how messed up things are. I'm go. pretty sure it's the Sea of Reeds. I'm, I'm pretty sure. Fine. So at the splitting of the Sea of... Yeah, that sounds right. The splitting of the Sea of Reeds. Um, you see that the Israelites kind of cry out to Moses when they're faced with the sea that hasn't split yet and with an army right behind them saying, hey, um, did you take us out here to kill us, perhaps? Like, uh, uh, did we just come out here to die? You know, and they all started crying out. And while this might not seem like prayer at first, if we look deeper, it is, it is what they're used to as prayer because they see Moses as the direct emissary of God. And they only are capable of crying out to God because they, that's how they see him as like that, that hope and despair. And like they were, they're only used to communicate, communicating because of suffering. So right now they're feeling suffering and they're communicating. Important points to make. And later, right when they cross the Sea of Reeds, there's a war with the, uh, the nation of the Amalekites. The Amalekites attack the, uh, the Jews right when they get freed, right away. And you see that the Jews are kind of given a hint to prayer. You see that Moses, as we know him, he's raising his hands while the soldiers are fighting, the Jews are fighting. Well, not really soldiers, they're slaves, but who kind of have very little experience. And as he's raising his hands, they're winning. As he's dropping them, they, they, they lose. They, they're losing. But what is prayer here? Essentially, prayer here is, it, it's an idea that no matter what you're doing, as long as you kind of look up, you know, as long as you kind of realize, like, it's a hopeless situation. It's slaves against the warriors. But if you look up and you really kind of sense that presence while doing your own part, while actually fighting the battle, you'll get some help. Like it's, it's going, it's inevitable. And as you see, when the Jews leave Egypt, uh, you know, when they're actually at the splitting of the sea itself, there's a very unique form of prayer that we see only two other times that I can recall throughout scripture where the, where Moshe, Moses is singing a song. And uh, from what I understand, like, you know, I know that the common opinion is that everybody sang the song together through prophecy. It could be, I wouldn't be against that opinion, but I, to me, it's more powerful to say that it was probably Moses saying like a verse, praising God, and them chanting afterwards. I think that's correct. I, th- I think that's probably what happened. But prayer here is viewed as a, as a recognition of the, the, the unbelievable power of God to save or you know to to be with you, yeah. right? So that's that's the, shira, the idea of shira is like. Is happens when you give shear when you can when you recognize yeah, God's providence in all of creation, not just in the, the problem with the Jews up until then was that they saw okay God is like that like when things are going bad we go to God but the truth is everything leading up to that every God was controlling every single factor of it so there's no reason to wait until things get bad God is with you the whole time that's the idea of, of a shira it's like the true that was. That was what we, the, the, the Medrash says that even a, a simple maidservant was able to comprehend the, basically saw the image of God, whatever, you know, basically was able to see God in, in, the, in, in all, in completely, complete physical manifestation in the world. Right, right. So that, that's, that's powerful. You know, song has, like, all these things have a great power to open the eyes of even the most uneducated, not to their faults. I'm not calling anybody uneducated as an insult. Anyways, so the last thing before Revelation, really, in the Israelite world that we should get to is um, how they prepared for Revelation. I mean, it was going to be introspective. You know, Moses kind of told everybody, prepare yourself three days in advance. Don't be with a woman, you know, like uh, kind of 
there was this idea of purity for prayer. They were getting a lot of ideas on prayer, you know, prayer as a time of prayer in the times of suffering, prayer as a beacon of hope, prayer as part of the effort that you cannot make yourself, that you need to rely on another and on something beyond you for, you know, and all these things are just kind of, um, there, there are aspects of prayer that are introduced to. So again, the broader world pre-revelation is kind of dominion. You know, it's, it's using prayer as dominion, as gaining power. We see it with the temples of the Mesopotamians. That was to inspire fear and dread of themselves. We see it with the Egyptians. It was to get into the afterlife. Um, the idea of totems and idols. Yeah, it's, it's there, but not as commonly as we believe just yet. Um, totems and idols are more of the post-revelation uh, societies that we'll see. So, uh, David, take it away. I just wanted to mention, I think that's the uniqueness of Jewish prayer versus all the other t- prayers because Jewish prayer was primarily for survival because they were just, they weren't warriors like other nations were. Other nations that weren't strong enough to just cease to exist, the Jews survived on this on this same idea that they had in Egypt that to when they're in a tough situation, when they think all hope is lost, they cry out. That's the only strength that Jews have is in their mouth in, in, in prayer. Yes. And that's, it's definitely a distinction because to view prayer as a means to dominion, as opposed to a means of getting out of a bottomless pit is definitely a, a positive change, you know? Yeah. Um, it's unfortunate that humanity had to go through the dominion phase first, but that's how we are. That's yeah, how yeah. we were. Okay. So, that, so we're going to go from the giving of the Torah at Harsina up until uh, what, when the Jews first got a king, the King Saul. Um, now regarding uh, the, the non Jewish world at the time, we had different kinds of worship, uh, basically uh, a var- varieties of paganism, and we were talking about the Canaanim, the Canaanites, and the Moabites. They worshipped various gods like the Molech, Dagon, right? The Dagon was a, was a, Dagon comes from the word uh, Dug, a fish. That he had a, it was a statue in the upper body. I believe the upper body was a fish and the lower half was a man or vice versa. I don't remember. Um, a variation you know, of a merman. Yeah. Uh, there was the, all sorts of mostly child sacrifice was the main like form of like big time prayer to these deities that was uh, there was there was one of them i think the balpaor where you would uh, defecate in front of the yes. statue and that was how you worshiped it other ones you threw stones at them there are all sorts of strange uh, uh pagan worshipers right so let's let's talk about it. We got the Canaanite worship. Um, that's the that was the main worshippers, main society outside of Egypt and the Middle East. Um, a mighty society, you know, very very mighty. Their deities were virtually, their deities were mainly between four: um, Dagon, Baal, Astarte. Uh, sorry, the Asherah, or as we know her nowadays, Astarte. Are you talking uh, about the tree thing, the Asherah trees? Yes, but that was also a god. The Asherah trees were trees uh, connected to the goddess Astarte. Uh-huh. And the um, and the last god is Moloch, uh, the one that we're probably most of the, most of us know. 
Um, now, interestingly enough, Molech was actually, all these gods were actually worshipped within the Canaanite and Moabite communities. Most, they were very prominent in the Middle East. Um, the deity, uh, the gods Dagon and Baal, you know, they're deities of the Philistines. Dagon, as, they, as David mentioned, is it's believed to be the supreme god, actually. Uh, it's, the, it's the fish god, you know, that's how we translate it. And he's supposed to have dominion over all of physicality because he had the 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 water aspect and the land aspect. Oh and yeah, exactly. That's a good point. There was something about about air as well. Something about had wings, maybe I don't know. I don't know fins and lungs. I have no idea. Um, but regardless, um, so Baal, this second god, was believed to be his son. Now again, Baal is not the original name. It was the colloquial. Uh, it was the colloquial word used to refer to the god Hadad. Hadad is actually the name of, uh, uh, is actually what we refer to when we meet, when we say Baal. Um, you have to understand that these four gods, they don't really disappear until the rise of Christianity um, and the Roman empire. Like even with the, you could argue that they kind of disappeared with the, with the ancient Iranian empire and the Persian takeover, but it's hard to argue that because they incorporated gods. Regardless, they were around for, you know, they, they were around for a millennia or two, actually. Now, the, so Dagon and Baal are both rumored to have been worshipped with child sacrifices. Astarte or Asherah wasn't really known to be uh, worshipped with, with uh, child sacrifices. Um, she was a goddess of war, you know, fertility, love, and sex. Um, she was prayed to for success in war. So we see a dominion aspect again with all these gods. They were all used for war and for, you know, dominion and kind of superiority. Um, most of the gods were worshipped with child sacrifices in the Canaanite and the Moabite word, world. The last god is Chemosh, the Moabite god. He was a deity who demanded child sacrifice, even from non-Jewish texts that we have now. So it's actually quite surprising because we know that somebody who wanted to curse the Israelites after Revelation um, the king of Moab at the time, his name was Balak. I don't know how to pronounce it in English. Um, well, he went to a, a Jew. He went to a Gentile diviner of Hashem to strike down the Israelites, and that's so fascinating because even though he he couldn't separate the fact that Hashem isn't a god for dominion, you know, like we didn't view Hashem as a god for dominion. We say that he was a man of war, actually. But that's one of his many aspects that we speak about. The Talmud actually pinpoints his, his particular skill when it comes to Hashem. That he, he said that he called himself the Yodea Das Elyon, the knower of supreme knowledge. Balaam you're talking about, right? Or Balaam. Yeah. And the Gemara asked, like, how in the world does this guy have knower of supreme knowledge if he doesn't even know what his own donkey's thinking? He can, he can apprise the thoughts of the Almighty, but can't figure out the thoughts of a donkey? Because there's a very interesting story in the in, in the Gemara and Avodazara about that we won't get into, but basically it said that he understood that there's a one instant. It's one. I think it's maybe about one eighteen hundredth of a second. Let's just call it an attosecond. Like, a very small amount of time that God, uh, in some way, gets angry, and that in that moment, if you were to curse somebody, you were you can invoke God's anger on that person or thing so Tosis asked like what was he supposed to say in that one instant it's not that much time so he said that you know he just say kalem destroy them but that was his plan but 
the, the Gemara notes that in all the days that Bilam was trying to use this tactic, Hashem didn't get angry during those days. Okay, so let's go on to the Jewish world, right? So the Jewish world has this, I guess right now, post-revelation, um, the, the first time that a, that a non-Israelite's eyes that a non-Israelite's eyes are opened to what God is, is Balaam, the gentle diviner of Hashem and the Torah. And when he talks about him with his open eyes, when he finally understood Hashem, it says things as, along the lines of the words of Bilam, the man with the open eye. So, right. And so over there, the man with the open eye, and he starts praising God, and he starts seeing the... He starts seeing how this change is going to happen in culture and society. And it, prayer over here is speaking from clarity of mind. When you've been proven so wrong or your worldview has changed so much that you can't help but break out into a dialogue with something, you know, to speak to something or someone and to praise them for whatever's going on. Now, didn't seem like his viewpoint changed for very long. I mean, we could talk about that in the next episode because I do sure. think his viewpoint changed. Fine, but we'll talk about it. Um, so the, the next instance that we see of prayer that's noteworthy until the, until the first monarchy, at least from my view, is the prayer of Joshua, the famous prayer for him to have the sun stand still. This is a very important point because what happened was they were fighting a war and Joshua asked for a miracle for the sun to stand still in its place. And the sun was like, who are you to command me? I'm sure, you know, this and that. Okay, whatever that means. But essentially, Joshua asked for the sun to stand still, and the scripture writes that it did. And it's important the next verse, it's vital for us to understand. Never before and never again did God cause something to happen because of the words of man, because man requested it. Okay, too often we view a prayer as, I'm asking God for things. No, that's not how it works. It's very complicated. It's not just I ask God for something and it will happen or I ask God for something and I expect it to happen. No, it doesn't say something big like the sun, like the sun stopping. It says any, like anything that man asked for, God did not do simply because God, because man requested it. We'll talk more about that in the discussion episode. Oh, definitely. Please tune in to the second part of the history of prayer to hear how prayer evolved throughout the era of the first monarchy in sovereign Israel until the 21st century.